It's Zhang Hu Hustle. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zhang Hu Hustle. I'm here with my co-host Eric Farmer. And I'm here with my co-host Eli Kurtz. It's good to be back with you, Eric. Oh man, it feels like forever. I know, I know. We were uh, we were parted, but we're united once more and we're ready to take on the entire martial world together. That's right. Cue shots of our hands clenching. Yeah. In and like brotherhood. lightning in the background and explosions yeah. and stuff. That's a different genre, but you get the idea. Sure. <laughs> so we are continuing our discussion of serial stories as seen in Laughing in the Wind, which was a pick from our Patreon supporter, Lowell Francis. Thanks so much, Lowell. This time, in the first couple of episodes, we were talking about... Uh, just one scene and how it affects the characters that are directly involved in that scene. And this time we wanted to pull back and look at the faction level politics of the story because there's a lot to explore there. And it's not at all because we just got sucked in and watched several more episodes. Yeah, definitely not. Definitely <laughs> not. Although uh, if that were the case, I would be compelled to say that this show is amazing and anybody who has the ability should head over to YouTube and give it a try. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, specifically, we are focusing on episodes three, four, and five for this episode. We uh, are taking the faction stuff that was introduced at the end of episode three and pretty much all of episode four and then the relevant bits of episode five as well. Uh, but before we do that, we should probably thank our patrons, shouldn't we? Oh, man, we've got we've got a, a nice, good, healthy list going on of patrons. Yeah, we do. Thinking. Yeah, our Patreon has grown quite a bit. And so um, without further ado, Andrews Gabrielson, Brian Kurtz, Chromatic Chameleon, Dave, Derek Smith, Fraser Ronald, Gallant Knight Games, Jared Rasher, Jason Detman, Jeremy Marr, Leonard Murphy, Liam Murray, Lowell Francis, Misdirected Mark Productions, P.K. Sullivan, Rob Abrazado, Sean Nicholson, and Todd Crapper. Thank you so much for your support. It means the world to us. And we are just inches from our first real patron goal. So we're at $47 as of recording. When we hit $50, we're going to be donating a portion of our Patreon money to a charity. And that charity that we've selected is Asian Americans Advancing Justice. And they're a group that does advocacy they help develop grassroots leaders. They organize some education things. Uh, they connect communities. They're involved in getting out the vote. And their main aim is to uh, achieve racial equality uh, in the United States, especially focusing on uh, Asian American and uh, Pacific Islander related things. So we think that's a really good cause. And it speaks to sort of like what we want to be doing with our project. So all we need is just a couple more bucks and we can start doing that and really giving like a meaningful amount. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to support us, that's great. We would love your support, but uh, we would really like to take some of your money and also support a good cause with it. So if that's something that motivates you to please consider heading to our Patreon and uh, joining us there. Um, like, like Eric said, we did some research and we looked at a couple of different potential charities and we liked the mission of Asian Americans advancing justice. And we're just really excited to be able to support them. And we're so close to doing it. So, um, yeah, that's exciting, but, uh, we should probably go ahead and start talking about the rest of the show at this point. Shouldn't we? Let's do it. Oh, cause it's right. exciting. 
Yeah. So um, details about this show, we've covered them in a previous episode, so I'll just give a brief overview now. Um, it's Laughing in the Wind. It's a 2001 TV adaptation of the 1960s uh, novel from Jin Yong, uh, The Smiling Proud Wanderer. And uh, this show was directed by Huang Jianzong and Yuan Bin, and it was written by Chen Yushin and Zhu Kai. Relevant cast members, there are a whole lot of cast members in the show, but the ones who are really relevant to our discussion are Li Yapeng as Ling Hu Chong, Wei Zi as Master Yue Buchun, Chen Li Feng as Yilin, also known as Little Nun, Xiu Zongdi as Liu Zhengfeng, uh, Peng Denghuai as Master Yu Kanghai, and finally, Kong Zhijun as Chu Yang. We're going to blaze through the the plots because we've got three episodes to talk about, and they're actually like fairly densely plotted. But we're going to give you the overview, and then in our discussion... We'll, we'll pull them apart and we'll see what's going on. So in episode three, Ling Hu Chong stands wrongfully accused of helping Qian Bo Guang to kidnap Yi Lin, the little nun, and rightfully accused of crudely killing one of Master Yu's Qing Cheng disciples. Ling Hu has been absent for some time, so his master Yue must answer the other master's demands with limited information. He deflects by pointing out the shortcomings of some masters and deferring to the cordiality of others. In particular, he accuses Master Yu of destroying the Fu Wei Escort Bureau, not for vengeance, but only to get the Purity Sword Manual. So Master Yu deflects by calling out Master Yue for harboring a suspicious hunchbacked peasant in his school. And this peasant is none other than Lin Pingji, who is the disguised heir of the now-destroyed Fu Wei Escort Bureau. Master Yu almost tortures a confession out of Lin, but then a wild hunchbacked Shah named Mu arrives to rescue Lin, kind of out of the blue. Uh, they escape, but not before Lin embarrasses himself by begging Mu to kill Master Yu, quote, as all in the martial world should do. That's quite a bold statement made by Lin in that moment. That's the dramatic ending of episode three. So the episode four focuses on the retirement party of... Master Liu. There's some intrigue between a few characters, Master Yu and Ling Pingji, Mu and Master Yue, regarding the Purity Sword Manual, but we're focusing on the retirement party and what happens after for this episode. So Liu Zhengfeng wants to retire from the martial world to make music with Chu Yang, who just happens to be in the evil party. Most of his fellows in the Alliance are ready to give him a fond farewell, but then the strongest member of the Alliance, the Song Shan sect, arrives and its leader, Master Zuo, demands that Liu kill Chu Yang before he can retire from the martial world. So Liu's friends in the Alliance object to Master Zuo's aggressive entrance, but ultimately they agree with the guy's demands, which might be for the sake of political face, that's something we can discuss later. Liu doesn't budge, though, despite multiple warnings and censures, including the killing of his own family right before his eyes. It's Yikes. some serious conviction. Yeah. Uh, just before Liu is killed by everyone there, Ling Hu and then Chu Yang leap into the scene, and Chu and Liu escape in the chaos. In the end, Ling Hu is arrested and imprisoned by Song Shan's sect. Yilin and Master Yue's daughter visit Ling Hu in his imprisonment. Yilin wants to share a meal with him and talk about their future, while Yue Lingshan doesn't seem to want anything. Neither one of them realized they were followed by the Songshan sect soldiers who rush into the room and tie all three of them up to face judgment. 
Yeah, say that three times fast, huh? Songshan <laughs> sect soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> Red leather, yellow leather. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so that's the that's the meat of episode four. Um, and then in episode five, there's still some factional stuff that's relevant. So we'll sum up that stuff too. So at long last, Chu Yang and Liu Jiangfeng compose and perform their song, Shao Ao Jiang Hu, which translates to Laughing in the Wind in this translation. Although, a quick note, that's the title of the novel in Chinese, Shao Ao Jiang Hu, and the phrase translates to mean living a carefree life in a mundane world of strife. And you'll notice Jiang Hu, obviously that's some, a concept that we're familiar with. So anyway, Chu Yang and Liu Jiangfeng compose and perform this song, and Ling Hu and Yi Lin, who escaped, are there to hear it. Chu and Liu hardly have a chance to enjoy their harmony when the Songshan enforcer Fei shows up and kills Chu Yang's granddaughter. Um, Fei takes on Ling Hu, Chu, and Liu all at once and holds his own, and ultimately he isn't killed until Liu Jiangfeng's master Mo arrives out of the blue and then kind of disappears just as suddenly. <laughs> so later while traveling, Ling Hu stumbles upon the imprisoned Lin family as they're interrogated by Mu, who's the hunchback who suddenly appeared an episode ago. Ling Hu scares Mu away, and before the Lin family dies, they beg him to pass along a message. They would be honored if their son, Ping Ji, would become a disciple of Master Yue of Hua Shan sect. Ling Hu delivers the message, but Master Yue is hesitant to accept Ping Ji because of his entanglements with the hunchback Mu, and because he killed Master Yu's son. The abbess arrives to say that she'll stand by Master Yue if he takes Ping Ji as a disciple. Then another Songshan sect enforcer ominously congratulates Master Yue on his new student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, this Songshan sect enforcer, he doesn't even get introduced like he doesn't have a name he's just a, a force in the episodes and there are a few characters like that we also mentioned how you know master mo kind of arrives out of the blue whenever chu and liu finish their song and there are, like i said there are a couple other characters like that i, I just kind of had to come to peace with the idea that these characters probably get more screen time later on in the episodes right and we didn't even mention that holy lady comes in and helps deal with the the Songshan sect while Chu Yong and Master Liu are are dealing with their music and all of that kind of stuff. So Yeah, yeah. It was an interesting moment. There's a whole, Just, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah, especially because Holy Lady wanted to kill Chu Yang in the first episode and mm-hmm. he had to basically beg for his life and she didn't seem too keen on doing it. But I don't know. I I I have thoughts about that, but we can get into that later, I guess. <laughs> right. So we wanted to talk about faction-level politics in these episodes, and they are rife with examples. But before we get too deep into the details from the episodes, I wanted to discuss the concept of face in Chinese culture. Uh, this is the term like, you know, you have to save face with somebody. I'm going to lose face with somebody. It's an international concept, but it has some pretty deep roots in China. I wasn't able to tell if China was the first culture to use this term face and that sort of thing but they have been using it for a very long time and i think that an understanding of how they perceive this concept will help us not only in this episode but actually for our entire project so just really briefly there are three chinese words for face in common use uh, this is mian lian and yan 
And of those three, Mian and Lan, or sorry, Mian and Leon are both pretty regularly connected to this concept of uh, sociological face, I guess you could say. In terms of the history of the term, there is a Chinese philosopher and writer by the name of Lin Yutang, who in 1935 described face like this. Interesting as the Chinese physiological face is, the psychological face makes a still more fascinating study. It is not a face that can be washed or shaved, but a face that can be, quote, granted and, quote, lost and, quote, fought for and, quote, presented as a gift. Here we arrive at the most curious point of Chinese social psychology. Abstract and intangible, it is yet the most delicate standard by which Chinese social intercourse is regulated. He goes into some detail and talks about how there are these two particular terms, Mianzi and Lian. Mianzi is like your social status, your prestige. And Lian is your moral character, uh, the trust that people have in you to be a good person. And so these two concepts are two of many concepts that are a part of this concept of the face, but they're really particularly important for our conversation. Um, and then that gives you a little bit of an idea of the history, but to give you a, a taste of the modern understanding of the term too, um, I found a, a blog post on a Chinese cultural website that went into it a little bit too, uh, particularly for modern business people who find themselves going over into China and interacting with business people over there. And so the quote from that website is, In China and much of Asia, face represents a person's reputation and feelings of prestige within multiple spheres, including the workplace, the family, personal friends, and society at large. Uh, this post went on to say that there are three components of a modern understanding of Chinese face. Uh, the first is individual, which is a person's self-esteem via their accomplishments. The second is community, which is respect paid based on position or status. And then actions, which are the activities that actually allow someone to gain or lose face. And then one brief example of how face is used in practical Chinese interactions is Giving face can be an opportunity for you to build relationships and influence decisions with people, especially people who are less prestigious than you. If you give face to them, you elevate them and they become indebted to you. Whereas causing someone to lose face can reinforce your own status. It can push someone out of their job. It can pressure someone to fulfill a promise, things along these lines. So you may be listening to this and thinking the concept is pretty intuitive. It, it, it's almost exactly how we understand it in Western culture as well. You know, you've got social standing, you've got political standing, business standing, whatever. And there are ways that people can honor you or criticize you that can build up or diminish your own standing. It's just such an important part of Chinese culture, especially in Wuxia, that I felt it was important to give a brief overview here. Sure. Do you think that there is a piece that is different or more important in like what the research that you've done, uh, than than what we might do, like here in the U.S. feel like. Sure. Well, um, in Confucianism, filial piety and the five relationships are really important things uh, on a on a level that we probably don't see in historical Western thought, and certainly not in modern Western thought. So the five relationships, I couldn't name all of them for you right now, but I know it's like ruler to subject, um, father to child, or parent to child spouse to spouse, older friend to younger friend, 
and uh, brother to brother. So I guess sibling to sibling. Uh, These were all very gendered terms in history, but I am appropriating them for our modern times, which is something (laughs) that Confucius said to do. So uh, there we have it. Sure. Um, I mean, I think we've seen this come up in in other like people or like if you if you try to make somebody lose face, like they might try to like resist you doing that. Right. Like they may they may they may be forced to like prove themselves. Absolutely. Well, particular way. Yeah. And the thing is, the thing that would make it different from a Western understanding is that Confucian culture is so rigidly hierarchical that a person who is inferior and loses face with a person who is superior to them would not have the opportunity or would not have the power to be able to call that out in the moment. It would have to be a much more uh, rigidly etiquette-based kind of thing. Uh, It would be much more political and kind of back alley, I think, in order to scheme against that that person who is superior. Sure. Or it'd be like lots of little incremental gains. Yeah. Rather than like just a face, like a full challenge for a face. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I mean, even today... um, I saw a piece of RPG Twitter discourse that said basically just don't forget that you can spend 10, 15, 25 years building up your reputation, but all it takes is five minutes of bad action and the whole thing comes crashing down. Sure. Uh, The same is absolutely true of the concept of face as we will understand it in these episodes. Right. Mm -hmm. And it carries quite literally like life and death consequences. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine the the thoughts about political face that were running through Liu Zhengfeng's mind as he was trying to decide if he was going to retire and wash his hands in this bowl or if he was going to let his children get killed. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That is such a damning action. I mean, in any culture, but especially in a culture that cares so much about family relationships like Confucian China, it's just, oh, wow, it's astounding. Uh, Yeah, it's a really powerful, powerful scene here. Yeah. Yeah. Now that we have a basic understanding of the concept of face as it applies to this story, we should talk about, in broad terms, the factions that are represented in the political play of these episodes. So first we've got the Five Mountain Sword Sects Alliance, which is translated on YouTube as Righteous Party. And they are made up of, as it says, five different sects. Uh, We've got Songshan Sect, the biggest one, and they're kind of bullies. Uh, led by Master Zuo, and the other figure we see from there is Enforcer Fei. We have the Huashan sect, which is kind of the protagonists of our story so far. Uh, it's Master Yue Buchun, Yue Lingshan, his daughter, and then Ling Hu Chan, who is definitely the protagonist of our story so far. Um, then we have the North Hengshan sect, which is all the Buddhist nuns. It's the abbess, uh, Yilin, the little nun, and everybody else. We have the South Hengshen sect, which is Master Mo and Liu Zhengfeng, the retiring master. And then finally, we have Taishan sect, which is mostly unimportant to these episodes. It's it's the people who are like their leader is wearing golden robes and has gray hair. But I couldn't identify anything really important that they did in these episodes. There was a little bit of snark coming from the master. And that was all that I really saw. So we've got our five mountain sword sects alliance. All right. And then we have some other groups that are operating. Uh, the one that is tied to one of the main characters is uh, the Fuwei Escort Agency, which we see get destroyed 
uh, in the first episode, and its main heir is Lin Pingji. And he's important because everybody thinks that he has this secret sword technique. He has these books of this powerful sword technique. So everybody's after him for that. Mm -hmm. And he's also a real pushover. He is not great. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he's going to, I think he's going to develop. I hope so. I hope so. Because he's kind of a nerd. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we have some of the more evil or like sort of aggressive sects. So we have the Ching Cheng sect. Uh, and they are a sect of sort of like magical Taoists, right? Led by Master Yu Kung Hai. And Lin Pingji killed Master Yu's son at sort of like the very first episode. And again, that sort of spins the action into place. We have the Sun Moon Holy Cult, which on the YouTube is called the Evil Party, which is mainly represented by Chu Yong, who uh, we have talked about earlier as just wanting to play music with with Master Liu. And then we have some what we can only assume are independent Cha. So we have uh, Tian Bo Guang and the Holy Lady and Mu, uh, mm. the 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 mad. I don't know. He's like a wild man. Yeah, he. Uh... He's an interesting character. He seems, well, he and Tian Boguang seem like they're both cut from the same cloth. They're both clearly not involved in civilized society. They kind of move around in the wilderness, but they're both undeniably powerful too. Um, And the Holy Lady, you pointed out that she may be a member of the Sun Moon Holy Cult. I... I'm not certain about that, but it's it's definitely possible. I kind of have a hard time figuring out where she's from and what she's doing anyway. So could be anything. My only inkling of that is that it seems like Chu Yong owes her and mm. his actions are sort of dependent on her approval. Uh, and then there's also comes a point where she heals uh, Ling Hu Chong mm-hmm. on behalf of Chu Yong. Yeah. So, this, she's she's definitely like the big magic user in the setting. Yeah, and she's undeniably powerful. She holds off a bunch of people on her own just so that Chu Yang and Liu Zhengfeng can play their song. Um, which, <laughs> I mean, separate from the factional politics of the story, I did think it was extremely melodramatic and romantic even that everybody was kind of itching to hear this song if it was such great stuff you know that that so much was willing to be wagered to make it happen well and i think the the song not to get away from the faction stuff but i i think that the song is is actually pretty important for when we talk about characters in the martial world because they're trying to achieve peace through violence Mm -hmm. and then we see master lu and chu yong sort of stepping away from the martial world to actually create something Mm -hmm. and to make their lives have meaning beyond just martial power. Yeah. And so it adds, it adds that like counterbalance to the rest of the story that everyone is obsessed with martial power, but what are these people willing to go through in order to like have a lasting impact on the world? That's positive. Yeah, for sure. And it's really cool that, Ling Hu Chong is so interested in hearing it. It seems like it's a really formative thing for his identity as a Shah, especially as he kind of seems to be 
not necessarily betraying, but moving away from the Huashan sect that he belongs to. He's almost constantly kind of rubbing them the wrong way. Yeah, he's definitely like the black sheep. Um, mm-hmm. The the inciting incident for this big conclave is that everyone's mad at Ling Huchong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the abbess is mad because uh, he kidnapped Yi Lin, supposedly. And, you know, he's killed Master Yu's agent, mm-hmm. right? Uh, who is the the Ching Cheng sect? Mm-hmm. And you know all of these people are mad at him for various reasons, and it gives them a a good excuse to sort of come together and talk about all of the things that are going on. Yeah, it's interesting to me how much of that is based on misunderstandings too. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't actually help to kill or to kidnap Yi Lin. He tried to rescue her. He just failed. And then he also. Yeah, he killed Master Yu's disciple, but it was because of a misunderstanding that the dude had after his deadly fight with Tian Baguang. So, yeah, <laughs> poor Ling Hu. He just can't get a break. <laughs> he really can't. And the other part of his is the reason that people think that he was working with Tian Baguang is because he had to kind of cozy up to him in that scene that we talked about the last time we talked about this episode. He had to play the villain in order to bring Tian Boguang into his confidence enough to stage this special fight. Right. Right. Yeah. So other people saw it and they assumed that they were in league together. We know that Tian Boguang is a bad guy. We know that he's got a sort of Shah honor that he displays in episode three when during his fight with uh, Ling Hu Chong. But we know that he's definitely not one of the good guys he's selfish he's uh, manipulative he doesn't really listen to other people at all and it was interesting to me at the faction level during the meeting of the alliance and the retirement party to see the ways in which words like righteous and evil are used to kind of muddy the waters um I think at the end of these episodes, I came out asking myself, well, is the Sun, Moon, Holy Cult objectively evil, or are they just the people that the Righteous Party happens to not be cool with? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's the question that Ling Hu Chong is asking asking himself mm-hmm. at the end of the episode of like, well, if these are the people that we're allied with, and they'll kill children, because it is right, it is righteous, but is that good? Right. Yeah. And I mean, so we've got some examples here too. Master Yu Kang Hai uses the death the death of his son as an excuse to destroy the entire Fuwei Escort Bureau. But Master Yue in the heated meeting in episode three points out that it might have just been a pretense to destroy the Bureau to get his hands on this purity sword manual. And that's not cool. It's not cool to be disingenuous about your reasons for attacking somebody, but it's also really not cool to use the death of your son as basically a door to accomplish some other end. Right. You can take revenge. That's allowed. Mm-hmm. But sullying your revenge with a selfish motive makes it wrong. Yeah. And that's never... It's called out in the episodes, but it's not really proven is the case. I assume that's a plot point that's going to come out in further episodes. But right now we're just getting this first taste about the disingenuousness that exists within Master Yu and uh, the things he's willing to do to get what he wants. 
so we see a lot of like covering up motives or people sticking to their their beliefs in a way that's like they're completely incompatible. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about Lou and his desire to he just wants to retire from the martial world and he wants to go off and play his music. And then the song Shan show up, right? And especially Enforcer Faye, he comes in and he <laughs> he he says, "Look, if I your boss says I have to stop you by any means necessary from retiring because we need to figure out whether your association with Chu Yang has poisoned this group. Yeah, they use the word collusion a lot. They want to know if he's been colluding with the evil party. Right. And he goes to some extraordinary lengths, and Liu, because of his convictions, doesn't stop him from wholesale slaughtering his family. Yeah. And I mean, if I were Ling Hu in this situation, I would be questioning the whole apparatus. <laughs> I would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. This guy's willing to kill a family just to get what he wants. And then, whoa, 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 whoa. The guy's, the family's father is okay with it? <laughs> yeah. I, that's, uh, I maybe don't want to be a part of this Five Mountain Sword Sex Alliance. Huh. <laughs> and it's the difference between, like, righteous action and right action and it puts all of these things in conflict and we only get that because we have these larger social structures on top of these individual actions Mm -hmm. lou wouldn't need to retire if there wasn't a construct to retire from yeah right and up and a power structure that requires his presence yeah well and one that has some major consequences too like uh liu jang feng part of the Part of the ambiance of this episode is that there are these kids running around in the marketplace and they're singing this song. And then mm-hmm. there's this really interesting scene between Liu Jingfeng and Master Mo at the shrine of their mutual teacher, uh, his his ancestor shrine. And they're praying to the teacher, but they're talking to each other about, I can't believe that my student Liu Jiangfeng would abandon me like this. I must have done something really terrible. And then Liu counters with, no, 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 your teaching is good. I, I'm just, I'm tired of it. I'm not worthy of it. I want to get out of here and, and everything. And then Chief or Master Mo says uh, he invokes the words of these singing children. And they're singing a song, leave the martial world, lamb meets wolf, family is ruined, devils come all over. And... <laughs> I mean, that spells it all out. Uh, Liu Jingfeng does leave the martial world and the lamb does meet the wolf and his family is ruined and <laughs> there are devils coming out of the woodwork in this thing. So I think it's clear that retiring from the martial world is something that you can do, but there are such huge consequences. It's like you build up this gigantic debt of violence and then you have to cash it all out in that moment and see how the chips fall. And they didn't fall in favor of Liu Jiangfeng. No, and I mean, I think we saw something similar in The Magic Blade, mm-hmm. right? Like where the main impetus of the of the bad guy in that is that he wants, he basically like needs somebody to take his place. Mm-hmm. And so he picks, he picks the main character and you discover that like, there's no such thing as retiring from the martial world. Be, be, because of of this these structures that are in place and you can only you can only move upwards or you can die essentially mm-hmm. there's no middle ground there 
Yeah. And that that those structures get more complicated when we start interleaving the factions that we see in here and they start putting pressure in various directions on on the groups. Right, because uh even within the Five Mountain Sword Sex Alliance, they they are not friends necessarily. They have their own petty rivalries, and uh, I mean, it seems like the Abbess is totally willing to go to the mat with Master Yue over uh, the subject of her disciple Yilin being taken. And the only way Master Yue is able to keep the Abbess from drawing her proverbial blade is by appealing to her status as a living Buddha uh, and and sort of courting her with cordiality. And uh, Right, but... When she thinks that Yilin is still kidnapped, she's willing to kidnap Yue's daughter. Yeah, as collateral. As collateral until until Ling Hu Chong, Yue's subject, returns Yilin. Mm-hmm. And so, in addition to like the the actions that the individual characters want to do, they have an agenda that exists above it, and they're willing to do certain things that we would see as wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it, this definitely um makes the relationships more complicated. Yeah. This was one of the this was one of the pieces of media we've watched so far that really hit home for me about how wuxia narratives could be repurposed for a modern Chinese gang culture. This notion that it is a very cutthroat and violent world where there's always deals being done and there's always these grand fatal gestures being made by all parties you can really see the criminality of the Zhang Hu and even the Wu Lin in these stories for sure Uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting and and we sort of touched on this last episode with uh Louisa and Louis and we talked about how even a good character's actions can appear villainous to someone else Mm-hmm. And so what what I love about these factions is that they just give like lenses for different people's behaviors. So the abbess, she's a Buddhist nun. She has a particular like she's trying to keep her her the nuns under her care, you know, pure and focused on what they need to do. Right. And anything that threatens that is is very dangerous, mm-hmm. right? So that gives her not just a level of like, we need to be the good guy sect, right? But I also have a thing that I need to protect these nuns from this worldliness that can interrupt their spiritual training. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a, you know, there's a Taoist sect and then Master Yue seems to be like sort of balanced, Right. And then there's then there's the Song Shan sect, which is clearly like super aggressive. Yeah. And they need to like control things in order to p- presumably keep the peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't get I don't get a whole lot of information about the Huashan sect, which is interesting because they're like we said, kind of the protagonists of this thing. They seem to me mostly generic compared to the others. Mm-hmm. Um but like even the the South Hengshan sect with Liu Zhengfeng and Master Mo I found out sort of through the episodes, but mostly through some research I did afterward that they are really focused on music. And it was interesting to me that Liu Jingfeng was like, oh yeah, I want to retire from this musical sect and I want to go off and make music with this other person. I could definitely understand the sense of betrayal that Master Mo would have felt. 
so we've got the Buddhists, we've got the Taoists, we've got the music people, we've got the Songshan sect, which seems pretty militaristic to me. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the only ones that wore like obvious armor. Right, right. They, and yeah. they were all in uniforms too, whereas most of the right. other groups, you know, the, the Taoists had their garb that was the same color, but it was a lot of different styles. The Songshan mm-hmm. sect, it was like same color and same style. Um, but yeah, there's, there are definitely, so what we're seeing here is that every faction has their unique skills. They also have their unique priorities and they have their unique limits that they will and will not cross to get what they want. It's also interesting to see them deal cordially with like the Ching Cheng sect because it's not a part of the five mountain alliance right right like they're this separate group of sort of magical taoists and are aggressive and they're doing this stuff but they're also a power structure that needs to be dealt with and there is a certain level of courtesy that has to be extended right yeah they they were treated so much as equals in the alliance meeting that i thought for a moment wait are they the fifth member of the alliance what how many how many Alliance, how many factions are here in this meeting right now? It threw me for a loop. Yeah. Um, and it would make sense to me also that if you have an alliance that has Buddhists in it, you might also have an alliance with Taoists in it to to capture them all, I guess, you know? Right. They do, <laughs> and, and they do. It's the um, the Taishan sect. Is right. The, the, but they don't get a whole lot of screen time yet. Right. And it makes me wonder, too, the Sun, Moon, Holy Cult, are they as monolithic as the Righteous Party portrays them? Or if we were to experience some episodes with that feature the Sun, Moon, Holy Cult, would we find out that they, too, are a bunch of infighting factions that are only unified by their enmity of the other of the other alliance? Right. Or do they represent uh, individualism? Mm-hmm. You know, are they are they only a group in so much as that they don't belong to a group? Yeah. Which would be another way of organizing that into into a structure. It's yeah, it's valid. It, it would be the difference between alliance and individualism. That's a really common theme in media. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, it's definitely a theme in Wuxia, too. You've got, you know, Dark Cloud and Crouching Tiger and you've got all sorts of people in all the movies we've seen. Right, and and they could have as a faction, they can have like a drive, mm-hmm. like they have a drive for personal freedom, and they have a drive for you know whatever their particular kind of justice is. But just like we see, all of these characters have different motivations. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a group, they might all act within, uh, even though they are not like a, they're not necessarily within a power structure. That they do have, uh, they all move in a certain direction. And actually, it occurred to me while you were saying that, that I, I did a little bit of research on the presence of specific factions within different Wuxia novels. And there are some surprising faction names that we'll get to whenever we get to the Gameable Ideas <laughs> section. So <laughs> buckle up for that. Um, do we have much else to go over here in terms of the factional politics that were at work? We've we've provided a few examples. We pointed out that Ling Hu is kind of uncertain about the uh legitimacy of these factions claims whether or not they're objectively as good or evil as he was led to believe i don't think so as far as like specifically the episode is going on it kind of gives us a good framework to talk about um but let's talk about some gameable ideas and see what like we can we can kind of fold this in and talk a little bit more generically about this 
Sure, yeah. So my biggest contribution to this section is that I found a list on Wikipedia that was a list of uh, 24, at least 24 Wuxia novels. It had a section that just said miscellaneous novels, too. Um, but they're by Jin Yang, Gu Long, Liang Yusheng, Huang Yi, and other really iconic uh, Wuxia authors. It was a list of all of the factions present in each of their novels. And so I did kind of a spot search. It wasn't super exhaustive, but I wanted to get an idea for which factions were the most common and if there were any that were particularly uncommon. And it turns out there are a lot of factions that appear in two or three different books, but there are also some that appear in many more than that. So for example, the Shaolin sect, one of the most iconic in all of the genre, uh, they were in 11 of these 24 plus novels. <laughs> Tied for second place with uh, Wudang, which also was included in eight different novels. The Beggar's Sect, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, Tian Bo Guang. Okay, he's just part of the Beggar's Sect. That's fine. That, that makes a lot of sense now. Uh, throw Mu in there, too. Why not? <laughs> it's uh, John, John Wick, too, right? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's Lawrence Fishburne. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, and then you've got a, fa- a sect called the Heavenly Dragon Sect, which had five, uh, which was in five different novels. You have the Mount Heaven sect, which was in five novels, too. But something that was really interesting to me is that uh, escort agencies, just a generic category, escort agencies, were present in 15 of these 24 different wuxia novels. And family sects, which were just like, you know, such and such family style, were in 12 of these 24 novels. So even though Shaolin is the one that we know most in all of the genre, it's actually the case that way more often you're you're bound to see something like just a generic security company or just a family style that's been passed down. I can see uh, like a security or escort agency as a good basis for uh, like a more directed wuxia game. Oh, for sure. Right. Like that's very much like go here, do a thing. And so there's a reason that it stands out in fiction because it, it's an easy thing to hang a story on, as well as families are, you know, rife with drama that you can that you can stir up. But like Absolutely. escort agencies, you're like, you want to get that action in there. And you're like, great, here's a task to go and do. And like a bunch of people are going to try to stop you, but you get to be heroic and you get to, you know, go and do the thing. Yeah. And, and you get those sweet, sweet ducats at the end of it, too. That's right. That's right. And that makes sense to me that like that these are that those are the two most common, the the security and then the family uh, but it is fun to have something a little more that feels a little more thematic like Shaolin and Wudong and uh, the beggars sect I want to learn more about them and yeah anytime you get great. like a cool name to to somebody it feels really like exciting and powerful mm-hmm. so I don't necessarily want to like skimp on that yeah um, there could be some really juicy fuel there too so definitely worth investigating more so speaking of joining a faction, um, I want to talk about, because one thing that we saw in the show was that uh, we had all of these factions and they, they all sort of were aligned and they sort of weren't. And one thing that I want to talk about is ways to make those faction level politics relevant to your characters. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to uh, keep episode five in because episode four is like where we see all of the factions interacting as factions 
right? Mm-hmm. But episode five is where we start to see the actions that individuals make within the faction cha- that challenge the faction have their fallout. Yeah, it seemed to me that episode three was introducing the factions in a way that was more tangible than the first two episodes. It's the first time mm-hmm. we see them all in the same room together. And then episode four was figuring out exactly how they're all tangled up with each other. And then episode five was taking it back down to the individual level and seeing how the fallout affects our characters that we care about. Right. And how it's going to affect, like, especially like our main protagonist, Ling Yu Chong, who's maybe going to start thinking about his relationship to his sect, to the Huashan sect, like, slightly differently now because... He's seen how their allies act and they're sort of tacitly in line with them because they didn't stop them Mm -hmm. from from the the Songshan sect from coming and doing these depredations. Right. Mm -hmm. And because they said, well, look, we we actually do need to know whether Master Liu's uh, has been colluding with the evil party. And so it's got to make Ling Hu Chong think, is this is this the kind of group that I want to be with? And to see the fallout of that, I think, is one thing that will help players take faction politics seriously. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's one of these things that it's easy to say like, oh, yeah, this group has this and this group is this and this group is doing this. And to have it be kind of over there where things are happening. Um, but to really show that like your characters as individuals can can push on factions and they can push back and that the factions have complex relationships within each other that spill out into actions that happen in the story. Mm-hmm. You know, like that one scene where Master Liu is like trying to retire is one thing, right? Like that's a cool scene but it's mostly like a faction level scene. Yeah. But then we get to see, I'm presumably like the next several episodes will just be the fallout from, from that. And we'll see the fallout of Lin Pingji and his intersection with the Ching Chang sect and the purity sword manual and all of that kind of stuff. So I think seeing the way to make these factions tangible in the story is to make sure that like, any time a character sort of like bounces into one or runs counter to one faction, that there is an actual reaction. Like things with characters come out of come out of that faction level down to the main character level and interact with them. Yeah. Well, and you know, to make this gameable, if we were to develop a series of questions, you know, to to mm-hmm. build up this faction drama. We could take Liu Zheng Feng as an example. The character states, I want to retire. And uh, you ask, okay, why is that a problem? It's like, oh, well, I want to retire because I want to make music with a friend of mine and my friend is a bad guy. Oh, okay, cool, cool. So we know that. Next question. Uh, what consequences will you suffer if you try to retire. It's like, oh, well, the big boss will show up and try to make me stop. And I'm like, okay, so next question. When you inevitably say that you're not going to stop, what does the boss do to escalate the situation? Oh, okay, well, he takes my family prisoner. Okay, what does he do when you continue to not 
back down from this. And, and through this series of questions, you can ramp up the stakes. And while you're ramping up the stakes, you're also complicating the narrative because it started off just a guy on his own. Then it, then it was like, oh, well, it's a guy and his friend. Then it's a guy and his friend who's bad. Then it's a guy who's dragging his family into this, who are not even part of the martial world. Oh, and then there's this big bully of a, of a primary fact or a primary faction within your alliance. And like all of those things add new layers to the drama that's unfolding. Well, and the, the interesting thing is that the factions can be, if you think about like a relationship map, and we've talked about earlier that uh, creating triangles is really strong. Mm-hmm. It's a really like uh, it, it makes for really dynamic relationships because they can be asymmetrical in interesting ways. And whenever you, you push on one, you're pulling on another. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we look at, at master Liu and Chu Yong, like they have a relationship They're they're good friends. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's a third group and that's the faction that, uh, that Master Lee belongs to. And then there's another one over here that Chu Yong belongs to the evil party. And then all of a sudden, the number of triangles that we have just explodes. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and then we go, okay, well, Master Lee was related to this, but he's actually related to these five groups. And how are they going to, re- like, how do we, when we start drawing these triangles, how do we, uh, like, what can we push and pull on that makes these interesting? Yeah. And, uh, the thing that that really helps is whenever you see when you've got a, a relationship and whenever you see one of those triangles, you know you've got a place that uh, that that blank space in between is a place that that drama can occur that there are, there will be stakes there. And by adding factions into that in in addition to just people, then you create a whole nother layer of complications mm-hmm. and a whole nother layer of stakes that you can add in. Yeah. Cause it's easy enough to say, you know, I love this woman and this guy is my rival and he loves this woman too. And that's a triangle. But right. then you can say, but the woman that I love is part of the Montagues and I'm not. And, uh, this other guy who's my rival is with a different faction who supports me, but hates them too. And like, yeah, it, it's just, uh, scaling levels of, of drama. Right. And it also lets you, you can do it dynamically. So you can see where like the ripples will occur. If I pull on this thing, what's connected to that mm-hmm. and what makes a triangle with that. And those things will be affected. It's making me think that whatever the faction stat block or whatever looks like at the end of this thing, it needs to definitely have, you know, a list of allies and enemies and sure. so you can look at a glance and see, oh, yeah, if you help out these people, these other people are going to be pissed about it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think a relationship map is like a, is an essential GM tool for dramatic games. Yeah. And I think this one might be fairly intense. <laughs> I think you might be right. I, <laughs> it shouldn't be too complex, of course, but um, it, it'll be a vitally important tool, it seems like. The nice thing that we see in the show that I think we can bring into our gaming is that each faction has only a couple of like faces mm-hmm. that we that we associate with. You know, each one has a master. Yeah, and the rest are all right. just or, uh, they're all just members, right? 
you know, or like maybe there's like a master and then there's some kind of student or like one other person, mm-hmm. right? Like that. And so it's, it, they, they do represent a faction within a person. And I think that makes it clearer, but yeah. I think having, you know, having that person be at odds with their faction is also interesting. So it's, it's another like layer of motivation that you need to, need to consider. Right. What else can we game about this thing? Uh, we've got these fraught factional relationships. We've got information about how they're tied to individual relationships. We There really wasn't, like, there was a mass battle in one of the episodes, but mm-hmm. it was not at all the focus of our story. It It was really the story of how these two guys fend off all attackers for the sake of escaping and making this music together. It it wasn't a moment for all of those massed forces to really shine or have their story told. It's definitely a, as many characters as as this story has, it's definitely focusing on the individuals Mm -hmm. and like, so mass battles aren't really like the dramatic thing. We just see like these people go off and they deal with it sort of in a offstage sort of way. Mm-hmm. But we know that that pressure is there. Yeah, we know that 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 if if that person doesn't go and deal with it, or something happens, then there's a consequence that is that can roll in. So it's your it's your front from like Apocalypse World, or it's your thunder from Swords That Master, right? Like it's this thing that's coming that we can signal to to put pressure on the characters. Yeah. Um, but the main drama is that dramatic interaction between the characters and their motivations and their factions and their motivations. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Great. Should we move on? Yeah. Sounds good. All right. So stealing is art. Uh, I had to uh, dig through some of my collection here to come up. Faction systems are are weird. They're generally just sort of like, hey, GM do the thing like like, you know how to gm this is you know remember to think about what's going on in the background yeah uh there are some games that give us some tools to deal with factions and uh i'm gonna have i have some of my favorites going from like most heavy gm stuff to like lightest all right so the first one i'm going to talk about and the first one that i have like real experience interacting with is the faction system uh, by Kevin Crawford. And this appears in basically all of his games. Uh, so Stars Without Number, uh, I think it appeared first in uh, a supplement called An Echo Resounding. And what it is, is it's essentially a mini game that the GM plays by themselves between sessions. And it's, you figure out who the big players are in your setting. And you give them stat, like you give them stats, just like they were a character. They're simpler. And then they have uh, various types of assets based on what kind of faction they are, whether they're smart, whether they're wealthy, whether they're uh, aggressive, et cetera, et cetera. Then you play this mini game where they go in order and they decide like what they're going to do. Like maybe they're going to, maybe the aggressive faction is going to start uh, mustering more troops or maybe they're going to move some resources from one place to another. And you go down the line and you run this little mini game with all of these factions and they can fight each other and they can interact with each other. They can trade with each other. 
And what happens is that by the time you get to the end of that, you have all of these factions that have done all of these things that will show up in the world. So if, if the aggressive faction is mustering troops, you might go into a town and find that there's no able-bodied men in that town anymore uh, ah. because they because the the army is is gathering up all of the able-bodied men to to form an army. And this is like a, a hook that the players could catch on to, or it's an explicit thing Correct. that they know, or right. And so what it does in and it explicitly in for Kevin Crawford's games. Uh, he sets it up in that it's a it's a sand. They're specifically set up for a sandbox, so that your players can like wander around these worlds, and that they have their own motivations, even if the player characters aren't there to interact with them. Cool. And so, yes, but it's the nice thing is like you go to a place and you find out that there is this story that's been going on without you, and you can sort of wander into it and find its effects, and then you can affect it. Um, and so like what the players can do can have an effect on the factions and, and when the players get strong enough, they can actually start leading their own factions. Cool. I was yeah. going to say at first, so I'm really conflicted about this to be honest, because I love, I've been on the hunt for a really satisfying single player RPG, uh, because it's tough to get a group together sometimes. <laughs> mm. And it would be really nice to have a satisfying RPG experience by myself when I can just do it on my own time. But I also have lately been really railing against the notion that GMs should do any more work than the players do, or than the other players do, I should say. And so this notion of like a game that the GM plays by themselves, eh, I mean... It's not a bad solution. I think it's just one that I have my own personal issues with. Um, which... Fair enough. It was new. It was new to me. So I've been running stars for that number, uh-huh. and so I've been interacting with this system. And the thing that I like about it, because normally I don't like to do this kind of like lonely fun kind of stuff. I'm not. It's not that interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but there, there's a couple of things that sort of smooth it out for me. Uh, one is that the author explicitly says, do this until it's not fun anymore and then stop. Cool. Uh, And then the other thing is that it turns out that it's just foundational prep. Mm. And so rather than it's, it's like creating your fronts or it's like gathering a list of names or maybe writing down some questions that you want to answer. It's not really any different than that. And there's no reason that you couldn't do this without the die rolling and the they earn certain amounts of money and then they can buy assets, et cetera, et cetera. But it kind of gives it a little bit of focus and makes it feel impartial, even sort of for the GM. Sure. So that like the world even feels kind of alive to the game master. Sure. Well, and I think ultimately, if that's work that's going to have to be done anyway, and, and mm-hmm. like you said, it is foundational. Uh, if you're going to be playing a sandbox, you want to know what the other factions are up to. And if it's work that you have to do, I am intrigued by the notion that it could be organized or structured in a gamey kind of way so as to make it more fun than just slogging through on your own. I think that's, right. that's definitely intriguing to me. And because it involves dice rolling and that sort of thing, it 
makes choices for you that you wouldn't choose on your own. Yeah. So that's interesting. The other thing that I really like about it is that the way that he designed systems, the GM tools and the player systems are, there's generally a bright line between them. So you can take the GM tools and use those in a different game. Ah, cool. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, but enough of that. I'm, I'm a big fan, but let's, let's move on. So the next one I want to talk about is remember tomorrow. And I've talked about this a couple of times because it has some really interesting things going on. Remember tomorrow is a cyberpunk game that has no character monogamy. So characters are just like in a pool on the table and people can pick them up and make scenes for them. But the other thing that each character has is that they have a tie to a faction and that is also created by the players and put in the center of the table. And there are structures in place where you can introduce a new faction. You can show what they're doing. You can have them actively oppose or support characters uh, within scenes and they have their own agendas and they're using the characters to increase their, their power essentially. And so they have a, like what we see in, in the, the story that we were watching today in that, like they have their own agendas that are sometimes for, but uh, sometimes for the characters, but they always reflect back on the faction cool uh, and make it make it so that whatever whatever they can do to make those characters act in the way that benefits the faction whether it's good or bad for the character yeah uh is is what they're like moving towards and again those are uh those are non-monogamous so other players can pick those up and and act for those factions i like it yeah there's a lot of interesting things in remember tomorrow um, I, I don't know that it's, it's not the easiest game to get to the table, but it's super interesting. Um, and then talking about super interesting, um, but a little lighter, um, I have these sort of on the same same line is uh, Archipelago and, or Questlandia, because they both have a thing where players can own sections of the world. Like in Archipelago, like one person can be in charge of the magic and one person can be in charge of the geography. And it's such a like a collaborative storytelling experience. But like whenever a question comes up about the magic, whoever owns that uh that detail has has the final say. All right. Um, yeah. And, and so, so that's it's, not necessarily factions, but it is elemental forces at work in the world that influence the world and and you have a hand in guiding them right and it makes the players the players have their own characters but then they also control elements of the world which i could see easily being drifted to factions Mm -hmm. oh yeah it could be applied pretty easily yeah and be like oh well what is this faction up to this player that owns that faction they can tell us what what's going on yeah uh and they're the ones that get final say cool on, on those things so I, it's there's a lot of ways and so we go from essentially like full gm authority to distributed gm authority down to player authority that's kind of how i structured my list here you clever uh, guy look at um, you yeah <laughs> i like it um no that's good and i think it's informative for any type of game we would want to create too. And I'm sorry, I don't know if you mentioned it or not, but I guess Questlandia, the system works similarly to an archipelago. 
It has the same thing where players own details. Uh, okay. And so they have, um, it's their responsibility to speak for those details. Cool. So that's why I put them on the same line because they essentially have the same technology in them yeah. that you could easily steal. Very nice. And it's not necessarily like a true lineage of the mechanics. It's just they happen to be really similar. Or do you think there was like direct influence there? I, I couldn't say. Okay. Well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cool idea all the same. Yes. Cool. So shall we move on to some comments? Let's do it. We've got quite a few. So let's let's dig into them. All right. Do you want to do this first one? So our first comment comes from George Pitre on G+, regarding side hustle number three. George says, been catching up on the podcast. While listening to this side hustle, I couldn't help but think of Ars Magica's troop play when you were talking about the more support characters. If you are familiar with the game, each player makes a mage that takes a turn being in the spotlight. When their mage isn't the focused, the player instead is playing a support character. I believe the term is grog, but I'm not completely sure. It may be something to look to when further developing your wandering character idea. And uh, so we got back to George and that is um, sort of a somewhere between Ars Magica and Remember Tomorrow is sort of where like th- my idea came from. Uh, and Ars Magica is really interesting because you have every player is a main character, but they essentially rarely interact because of the way that because you're basically a magician in a tower and you're doing your magician things and so you can send off your other the other characters to like go and do quests for you because you're a magician you've got stuff to do yeah Uh, so that's that's kind of fun but so it means that like everyone gets to be a magician and everyone gets to be a support character uh it, it it's a pretty it's a pretty clever idea and it solves that's one way of solving that problem. Um, and then remember tomorrow says, forget it. Nobody owns a character that comes with its own issues. Yeah. So that's why I like tried to fall somewhere in between, but George says, I suspected it had some roots there, but felt compelled to point it out just in case it had somehow escaped your radar. I have to say I'm extremely enjoying the podcast and it has reignited some personal game designs, game design ideas that have been sitting on the back burner. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks George. Yeah, uh, and best of best of luck on your uh, game designs. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks much, George. So uh, this second comment comes from that Dave guy on the misdirected Mark webpage. That's patron Dave, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, hey, yeah. Dave, how's it going? So Dave writes: Have you guys read Ben Layman's Polaris? It's GMless and has a really interesting mechanism for assigning quote NPC roles based on position at the table relative to the current main player. Opposite seat plays adversaries, seat to the right plays casual relationships, seat to the left plays formal relationships. Also, while the setting is the doom of the Frost Elves at the literal dawn of time, it's very much suited to at least some variations of the wuxia genre. Also, it's a damn fine game that doesn't get nearly enough love, and then he provides the URL to uh, check that game out. And then he says, oh, yeah, also, Ron Edwards' game Troll Babe has a really cool way of dealing with the scale of the protagonist based on what kinds of problems they can address. Um, So I've heard of Troll Babe like three times, but all I know about it is that it's an awesome name for a game. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty good. So I I went and I looked it up. Uh Troll Babe's one of those games that I've had for a long time and I've never had a chance to play. So I went and I dug it up and I was trying to see what Ron had to say about scale. 
and the it's very much like what we were talking about. So when you start out, you can only affect uh, your own well-being and maybe like a few people's well-being like as a as a main character, right? And what happens is that between sessions, anyone can vote to increase the scale of the game. So from sort of one or a few people, it goes up to a small group, then it goes to an organized group, and it, ha- it actually goes up in uh, seven levels up until we get to land a large identifiable by similar cultural practices and physical resources, including many communities across a diverse geography. So we start from just like a few people and we work our way up to like essentially like a whole country. And the the thing that Ron says in Trollbabe is that in between sessions, you can elect to increase the scale of the story of your effect on the, on the world. And, but you can never go back down. And yeah, so like you start off and maybe your main characters can just affect themselves and maybe a couple of other people. And then maybe we keep going and you, you know, we play a couple more sessions and you elect to save a village, right? Now that's level four, right? And then, so what it does is it creates this sort of level like ramp that you'll never slide back down on. But by the time you get to the end, you are all affecting countrywide. Uh, you, you, all of your stakes are now countrywide and epic in scale. Yeah, I mean, I'm always down for some countrywide epic troll babe stakes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's definitely like a, an interesting thing of like you can always ratchet up your scale, but you can never unratchet it back. Yeah. Like I said at the very beginning of this episode, or near to the beginning of it, uh, Liu Zhengfei, he built up a debt and he had to cash it in when he retired. That's right. That's right. And it just, it doesn't, and it's going to have the effect of like plunging this whole society into chaos, probably. Yeah. No, I dig Uh, it. And that's the kind of effect that his scale has. Cool. Well, yeah. Thanks so much, Uh, Dave, for suggesting those. Those definitely merit uh, further investigation. Yeah. And Polaris is a Polaris is a, you would dig Polaris, mm-hmm. Eli. It, the premise, Doom of the Frost Elves at the literal dawn of time. I'm already like, ooh, tell me more. <laughs> it's probably the most formal game I've seen. Uh huh. In terms of like, it takes a specific number of players. Oh. And like, where you you can't once you start playing, you can't change your orientation at the table. Oh. Like, you can't change seats between sessions. Because your relation, your physical relationship between players matters. That's sort of what Dave yeah. was talking about. And then there are ritual phrases. Uh, it's got a lot of good stuff in it. Very um, cool. But, I'll check that but out it's, for sure. Just gonna yeah, it's a game that right takes now. some investment. So cool. Ooh, I agree, Dave. It needs it needs some more love. Next on our list is a message from Brian Kurtz on Patreon, and uh, he says, "Great episode. Thanks for discussing my comment, guys." And thanks for the kind words. I agree with everything that you said. I love the idea of having some structure, perhaps just a few questions, to help this idea of defining what martial arts techniques and moves have come from the master-student relationship to keep it crisp and to keep it at the table. I believe this was a comment on the Kung Fu Panda episode, by the way. Right. This is the one where we, um, he was talking about defining uh, styles yeah. of like and training people in like one-on-one sessions for like how to talk about their action within the story 
Absolutely, yeah. Uh, So he goes on to say, one way to do that might be to have the GM say at the beginning of a session, okay, so part of being a successful Shah is to set martial arts goals for yourself and work to achieve them. Let's talk about one special move or technique you'd like your character to be able to perform in the next fight or in the next couple of fight scenes. I loved Eli's suggestion that one of the things to discuss would be how this technique got learned. Was it a special training dummy, some special aesthetic trial of self-denial, something unique to that character's background? Perhaps listing out a few ways that wuxia films depict how martial artists come to learn new techniques would give the GM and player a repertoire to draw from. And then he says, as far as implementation, a gaming group could pick a style that best fits them. One, everybody sits down at the table, and one by one, the GM and each player comes up with a move. Two this but other players throw in their suggestions too for the player and gm to adopt or reject or three the gm uses the less structured time before beginning a game session to spitball with each player about a technique while other players are free to listen in and participate or socialize with other players in that time before the game begins other players are not excluded but their presence isn't necessarily required either One advantage of the one special move per session, or at least per early session until a small repertoire is built up, is that it allows customizing this for a character over time without front-loading the burden of defining their martial arts moves at the time of character creation before any fights have actually happened or the player has had a chance to find out in play what they want their character to really be about. I think that last part is really key. Yeah. That, like, you want to on-ramp people. Yeah in a way that like they can start defining their characters, but they don't have to define everything all up front. Cause then you end up with really like static characters um, or characters that don't work the way that you thought they were going to work once you start playing them and then you're unhappy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and his third idea for implementation reminds me of an actual play podcast called Warda. Uh, I played a character in that and the game master drew would always at the beginning of a session do this, this section called getting to know you and it was just an icebreaker question as it was implemented in warda it was it was something about you know what is your character afraid of what's their favorite color what what kind of food do they just love to eat etc etc but for our purposes using that sort of less structured time to spitball with a player about a technique and then incorporate that in the session would make i think a really effective icebreaker for a wuxia game Sure. I mean, it could even be like in Apocalypse World during the first session, you're you're just supposed to like follow the characters around and ask them questions and like build out the world that way. Yeah. And so anytime that there is kind of a lull or you want to fill out the detail in a scene, you can say like, oh, what here in this scene like reminds you of your training and like, what did that look like? And you can you can just kind of drop these in as you play until you, until each the the player and the game master has a sense of like what each character's style is and how that reflects who they are. Yeah, just by asking like you know a question here or there, you can be more or less structured depending on on what you prefer. But it's a great way of like investing people, especially if you can tie it into like the action that's going on. Mm -hmm. it's a great way of like oh you see this person's technique and you were you were trained specifically against this you know this particular type of weapon like what did your master always say about it yeah and i think 
So it's possible that a question like that would be daunting as an icebreaker for a person, but in the context of it being an established ritual at the beginning of every game, uh, you know, what's your new move this time? Okay, what's your new move for this next session or whatever? That gives somebody a little bit of a chance to be prepared so that they're not just flying in blind and trying to come up with some sort of evocative name on the fly. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I honestly think like a list of, of names and things is just a good one to to have to hand anyway, even for, for players. Yeah. Just so like, because that's the hardest part. Like it's easy enough to like sort of describe and get a, get across what you want to get across. But like the actual naming thing is where people tend to fall down. Yeah. Yep. Makes sense. So thanks a lot for uh, that comment, Brian. Always nice to hear from you and uh, appreciate your insight as always. And we've got one more comment here to get through. Right. So we hear again from Dave. And uh, he says, uh, good app. I just started watching the new adventures of monkey on Netflix. And it's basically journey to the West set in Australia, not great production values, but it's fun all the same. Yeah. I watched uh, a few episodes of that and it has a real like Xena and Hercules kind of vibe to it. Uh, and it's not great, but like if you were into that sort of campy television, uh, it, it's pretty fun. Yeah, it sounds uh like it might be a sweet spot for me. I uh one of the, this kind of maybe sounds like a backhanded compliment, but this show has really helped me to move beyond my fixation on pristine fight choreography. <laughs> <laughs> it's not necessarily that I've lowered my standards. I've just understood that there's a lot more for the genre to offer than just a good fight scene. <laughs> I hear it. I hear it. Yeah. I definitely appreciate the stories more now than cuz I was just like when a lot of my appreciation is I just want to see like different types of martial arts go up against each other. Oh, for sure. And, but like, there's also good story and stuff too. So yeah. like that, I mean, that wasn't the only thing that was holding my attention, but now I have a greater appreciation that that's not the old, you know, that I can have both. Likewise. Yeah. 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 Uh, so Dave continues, uh, as for new games to draw from, have you taken a look at Tim Kapang's underrated classic Heroes Banner? It has a multi-track stress slash breakdown mechanic that is similar to the one you guys were spitballing. And while it's about young Euro fantasy nobles, it could easily be your skin for Wuxia without much effort at all. It's also damn fun to play. Actually, I'm looking back over the website and it's basically already a Wuxia game with a Euro fantasy skin. So that's another one we'll have to take a look at. Uh, Tim's a good guy, uh, and he designs really interesting games. So I'll definitely have to check that out. Delightful. Yeah, yeah. I just pulled up the website, and it looks like it is nice and affordable, too. A $6 PDF. Not bad. And, you know, once I'm uh, pulling up links about RPGs that I want to buy, it may be time to uh, wrap up the episode. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, once again, I mean, thanks for everybody joining us. And thanks for all of our Patreon patrons for your support. Um, like we said, we are right on the cusp of being able to do some charitable giving with our Patreon. So uh, if you want to help us get there, we would be delighted to have your help. And as always, thanks for listening. And remember to make your Kung Fu stronger. John Who Hustle is being released on Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. If you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Hustle.
You can reach Eli at ZapDynamic on Twitter or on his website, MythicGazetteer.com. You can reach me at Eric M. Farmer on Twitter or at my website, DogPoweredVehicle.com. You can reach both of us at Hustle on Twitter or Hustle at gmail.com or on the Misdirected Mark website. Thanks for listening. Bloop. Well, <laughs> don't have anything to add there. That needs to be the outro right there. Okay. <laughs>